clubhouse. Welcome back to Escaping Gilead. This is Paul. This is Caroline. And today we're going to talk about the fifth episode of the fourth season. This one was called Chicago. <laughs> Let's start talking about the squiggliest, squealiest commander that we have in Gilead, Commander Lawrence. He was brought right onto the carpet and had to speak there in that extremely intimidating forum with those two spotlights just on his neck. What did you think about this whole idea of a ceasefire in order to get some aid in, some some little act of mercy in order to hopefully allow the sanctions to be lifted? Everything that he does has me scratching my poor underpowered brain. I have a little hole in my skull. I can just get right to it. And He does not, you guys. And I can't figure out what his motivations are, where he's coming from, what he's trying to achieve. Ultimately, I think that he is trying to survive. That's number one on the call sheet for Commander Lawrence. But then somewhere in the mix there, he seems to have this mismatched sense of right and wrong, where on the one hand, he invents Gilead, and then on the other hand, he sneaks handmaids out of Gilead. When it comes to organizing things like a ceasefire, I'm thinking it's part of that sneak handmaids out of Gilead portion of him, but ultimately, he can't have everything he wants, and survival trumps all, so he's got to make deals and try to reconcile how he can live with himself every day making those kind of deals. I'm going back to Mama Oprah and the whole, when someone tells you who they are, you should listen. He told us in a previous episode that this entire thing is not about handmaids. It's not about children. It's about power. And that's all that Lawrence wants. Everything he does in this episode is to get himself back on the advisory council and to get back into power. So that's his entire motivation. And when it comes to Gilead in general, I think that he has a military mind. I think the things that he is proposing have everything to do with the longevity of Gilead and doing small things like the ceasefire, showing mercy. He's trying to get the sanctions lifted so that they can then become more economically powerful. It sounds like they're very powerful in the military. Now, we're just taking their word for it. I mean, I believe from what we understand, they took over the United States military for the most part. I believe that they probably do have some of that, meaning that do they have access to bombers? Do they have access to ICBMs? Probably. Do they have like the whole enchilada from what we have as the United States of America? I doubt it. But do they have enough to be scary and a nuclear power? I bet so. Well, we're just going on his word alone. He says the rest of the world is intimidated by the military power that Gilead has. So if we're going to believe that portion, and I don't think he's been much of a liar in terms of the realities of Gilead. I think that when it comes to the handmaids, I know it might be like head scratching about like, well, why, why would he want them out? I think he wants people in Gilead who are going to toe the line. And when you have these like sore thumbs, if you will, just sticking out there, I think he, he wants to pluck them, you know, and I know it would be easier to just kill them. I understand that. But there's this weird part of Lawrence, like you said, who's got a little bit of like, eh, just go like you're a peon. I don't care. I don't care about you, you know? So, and I think that when it comes to June, he has a little bit of a softer heart because of his wife. She did try to step in there and she did try to have a little bit more compassion for her. And I think he appreciated that. So there is a little tie there. Still though, power is- He's a ruthless man. uh, Yeah, yeah. Well, he's not bent on these ideals so far that he's going to die on any cross anywhere. The only ideal (laughs) is to be the most powerful country in the world. Yeah. That's it. And I don't like none of the rest of it. What he's saying is that I've made rules to keep you all busy down here, but just to keep you busy, the rituals, the routines, the rules, it's just to keep you busy. So I'm powerful. And I mean, I know that that's one of those things that is it's difficult because we're all really, really, really entrenched in June's story. And we'd hate to think that all of these things that are happening are absolutely mindless when it comes to, you know, like, well, well, but it has to have this greater meaning to these men. No, not really. I mean, they want to populate and have a larger country. That's very powerful. It's very basic at its core. Let's get into Nick and how he kind of weaves his way into Lawrence's plan here. Well, Nick, as we know, has this idea in his mind that he 
is Commander Lawrence's better just by virtue of Lawrence having gotten in trouble recently. But Nick is not half as smart as Lawrence, as it turns out. I think that he absolutely miscalculated how many steps ahead Lawrence thinks. And Nick only thought to the very next move, literally. And so he got way blindsided. What did you think of the meeting that Nick had with the two women? I think given their gray dress, they were econo wives for those keeping track of the world building stuff. I think they were econo wives rather than ants. Ants have that brown suit. Right. Super dangerous. There were guardians like right there, obviously within earshot. I mean, he is just flaunting this commander power of his counting on not getting turned in. I don't know why. I think this is like communist Russia and the idea that you get a little gold star, the more people you turn in to the government for being traitors. So the idea of him needing to track down uh, as like a personal project, (laughs) this, this rogue, he's doing it outside normal channels. You know, if he was, if he was assigned to find the handmaids, he'd go get a bunch of guys, they'd get in a truck and they'd go find them. But this is the way to do it. I mean, isn't the way to do it is actually to go to your inner sanctum and ask for what's the goss, find out what's going on? Because you're saying that. But if he's that a detective, has, that sure. That has never been. You're saying get in a truck and go drive and go find them. That has never proven to be successful. It has always ultimately been finding information. And he has those channels. Now, I am completely split on Nick. One hand, yeah, I do think he cares about June on some very, very weird world over here. But then at the same time, he's obviously extremely devoted to his mission of being a commander and being on all these fronts. Like he takes that extremely seriously. So, When he's asking where June is and and how this is all going, I am just kind of cringing because we can go with the idea of what he says. Like, I care about her. But then that makes Nick an extremely shallow and very not compelling character. Well, that can be very true, though. I mean, this is not the Nick tale as we've mentioned in other podcasts, I think. And so that is a complaint that I've actually seen with other reviewers from the show is wanting a little more depth out of Nick and being disappointed that when they do what we're doing, which is try to scrape off the surface a little bit, there's nothing left there. If actions are supposed to speak louder than words, his actions are a man who's devoted to Gilead and has this tiny little part of his heart that wants to deal with June and give her an opportunity, not unlike Lawrence, to kind of like leave the back door open to like let her get out. But at the same time, there's nothing about him that actually makes me feel like he's devoted to Gilead. It's just the power, I guess. Well, and the security. Um, I mean, he is getting higher ranked within this this country that the every day that it continues to exist, the more legitimacy it gains, basically, you know. And for shows like this that are have that have all this intrigue, there's there's kind of a meter that I keep track of per side character that is based on loyalty to whatever the different powers are, whether it's the character or where they live or the government or whatever. And I think if you were to judge his loyalty, say in that scene when he blocks Commander Waterford from intervening during the handmaids sneaking the kids out and all that kind of stuff, I think he'd be like a six toward Gilead, right? Where he's got plenty of room there where he's still letting anti-Gilead shit happen, right? Mm-hmm. Now I think he's like a nine, you know, in terms of like his 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 entire loyalty to Gilead is so far outweighs his loyalty to June that that's really where his entire focus is. Well, see, and I say June lies between nine and 10, but no one else and nothing else does. Yeah. So yeah, I agree with you. How surprised were you that these women actually had this information? Completely implausible. Who's getting this information back like a thousand miles? Look at a map. Look at a map, people, where Chicago is and where we think they are near Boston, right? Yeah. And, And who did we see on camera last week Nothing Nobody. Makes sense. Nothing Nobody. makes sense that two handmaids were spotted heading into Chicago. That doesn't make any sense. I'm just like, okay, whatever. Stephen's little group there was was foraging after they blew up the There's train, and no then they got out. You know, yeah, I agree with you completely. So let's move over to Lydia because Lydia also has a situation with Lawrence. 
This is very shrewd stuff. I like this. This is probably one of my favorite episodes of this season so far, despite the implausibility of the intel details from the Econowives, in that we have kind of this weird parallel between Lydia and June and where they are and what they're trying to achieve and, and that within their within their given structures. And so we're not used to seeing Lydia powerless. I appreciated the parallel play here between June's story and Lydia's. I mean, I thought that was actually pretty remarkable. They stick her on a treadmill. The the actual <laughs> like embodiment of going nowhere, right? Yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah. Futility in in the form of a of a machine. Right. Yeah, absolutely. And it was such a, an absurd sight because it also was like electric and modern in a time when, you know, it's all primitive and, you know, they can't read and stuff. And she's just basically like using this like Nordic trek in the middle of the whole place. It's just so funny. Like every time they have technology mixed in with the Gilead people it's like watching an amish person in a jet fighter or something yeah. it's like what are we seeing it is super here? super funny but i appreciated lydia's entire move here i think that her move towards blackmail in order to get reinstated was very smart i wasn't even thinking of all the secrets that she really holds but she holds so many we think she turns we th- or i don't even want to say we think she's like oblivious to the sins of the commanders. But no, I mean, obviously she's there. She sees who comes and goes. She is aware of what's going on with the Jezebel clubs and all that kind of stuff. So she knows the haps. We just take for granted that she's so loyal that she would never do anything with that. Ha ha ha. (laughs) Well, she hasn't uh, I, I wish I wish that knowledge gained from reading the Testaments was fair game into reading anything into her character because it suggests that she is beyond capable of playing the longest con ever that would make Commander Lawrence look simple by comparison. So the fact that that's kind of iffy in the canon of the show is like, oh, I wish I could use that because that would really enrich her character. It would tell me things like, yes, she is much more ambitious than she's let on and now she's finally using it. I feel like I could tell that though. I mean, she is a one when she says the girls were always my concern. I think that that's coming from a very real place, a very sincere, authentic place that this is where she has like made her little niche, if you will, in this very insane world of hers. And she isn't willing to give that up, which I appreciate. The one thing that I really have to ask you a question about is why do they keep these old ants around? Why in such a country with like limited resources and limited everything, food, electricity, everything else, why would they keep them around? I'm not suggesting killing them off. I don't want to see something like that. But one thing that I don't feel like this group has is a lot of integrity. Once someone is no longer useful to you, you just dispose of them. It's just that simple. So I find it hard to believe they would actually maintain this world. I see that another way. And it's just that we know that they have this bizarre Kool-Aid in Gilead that they all drink. The true believers drink, even though secretly I'm a viewer that thinks that a lot of them think that it's bullshit. But because they get something out of it, they'll keep playing along. Right. But I think there are some true believers. And within the canon of the show, I think Lydia is one of those true believers in that she, like you were saying, her role of taking care of the girls and guiding them through handmaidenship and all that, that is her mission and she takes it to her soul, right? But I don't think that's about Gilead. I think that's about being a teacher, about being an instructor, about being a caretaker, that she has to find her role in the world. I don't necessarily think that she subscribes to all the religious aspects of everything, like deep to her soul. I think it just makes sense to how she keeps a job and everything. Oh, yeah. I, I, I'm not going to totally disagree with that. It, it, But my point, though, is that part of that Kool-Aid is that they don't think that they're barbaric. Barbaric would be like, you're no longer useful to us, so you can choose how you're going to die but you'll die. But I don't think they see themselves like that. You know what I mean? I think they see I do. themselves. I'm just talking from a super practical standpoint. A super, like, think about it. You're like a village in the middle of the desert and you have X amount of food, X amount of electricity. Like, you're allowing people to retire on your dime and hang out and do nothing and play cards. 
this is not that group. Those men are not respectful. Oh, these are kind old women. Let us keep them, you know, in comfort to their old age. Really? No, I've I've actually seen plenty of dystopian sort of stories where just exactly what you're saying, when they can no longer contribute to the, the collective. It's a given that you they go. go. You're disposed but, of. And even- I'm saying Gilead doesn't see themselves- like that they don't see themselves so hard up that they gotta kill or maybe it's that they don't okay. or that they're, that they're so the, i think part of the comp the, the like, company okay, line on, is is that, is that there is that there's some level of kindness or something to what they're doing really i know but that doesn't match gilead Where i know is the kindness coming? i know so, it's okay, the Kool-Aid, not me okay but i'm just talking about i still think that that is just like a huge paradox like it doesn't make any sense it doesn't make any sense these people are just not like they're too pragmatic Forget about all the rest of it. Forget about like, oh, we don't, you know, they would make it a ceremony. Thank you for your time. Mm. Blah, blah, blah. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Like, I'm not saying that they would come and slash and burn them in the night. I'm saying they would be like, you have done your part, your soul, your, you know, dust to dust. Like, it would go like that. It would be something like that. That would make so much more sense. I know this comes from Atwood Books. I know this is an entire, like, part of her canon. So I get it. They kept it. But knowing these characters... Lawrence is a pragmatic guy and I just don't see that he would have set up a situation where, and then when people are not useful, we just take care of them in perpetuity of them doing nothing. Uh-uh, 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 uh-uh. I do not believe that for a second. So Lydia, super freaking smart, coming in, playing hardball, love it that he actually bites back. I would be so shocked about the blackmail portion. I never would be quick enough slick enough to say oh well surely you have crap on me cool in order for me to get what you want i'm gonna need you to give me ammo so i can go blackmail them all the other commanders up there so i can get back on the council super smart that's why i am giving him like the crown of strategy this week because he 100 gets how this all works lydia didn't see that next step coming he's two steps ahead of everybody even though we know that Lawrence is a published author, because we've seen all of his own books on his own bookshelf, there was something about that moment that reminded me of gangster movies or something where the person who is being threatened turns around and says, you think this is the first time I've had a gun pulled on me? <laughs> Just completely cool, you know? Yeah. And, and uh, the person holding the gun is never like, oh, yeah, totally. They're like Aunt Lydia. They're like... Um, what do you mean? I, I'm I'm holding the power here. So that was that was a great scene. Do you suppose that these two will continue to swim together, as they say, to make the country, quote unquote, right again? I do think they're a formidable duo, these two. And it works. I mean, to watch that scene of Lydia putting her coat back on, clicking her cattle prod back onto her belt, getting herself all ready for the day, and then watching her go through her instructions and her spiel that she gives a new class of handmaids. I mean, they are a formidable duo. I am very impressed with these two. Who I'm not impressed with, again, is Nick. Because when we go back over the council and they describe this entire ceasefire thing, I was completely surprised at the bombing concept. And obviously I was seated next to Nick, my mouth agape as well as his. I did not see this. Again, going back to my whole ants thing, this is who these people are. They are the people who wait for the relief missionary people to come in with the food and trying to bandage people up and then they bomb them. They are not those who are like, want to play cards for the rest of your life? Cool. They are not those people. So I was so surprised about this bombing, but also, yeah, that tracks, right? I understand the idea that Lawrence wants the seat on the council for a variety of reasons. And that, like I mentioned a second ago, his ideal was to have this ceasefire to be seen by the global community as the kind of thing a reasonable country that other countries who would want to do business with would do if they were at war with their neighbors. Okay, that's great. But then to agree to, yeah, we'll do that, but then we'll bomb the people that show up and that and still be like, yeah, that's totally within the spirit of what I was going for. But it's but like you were saying, it's really about that's a concession Lawrence is willing to make in order to get that seat back on the council for something bigger that he's got planned for himself in total. He is. The, my. I mean, from a strategy POV, I understand 
it's good for his personal strategy, but it's a gigantic misstep in terms of the larger story because they're not going to get the sanctions lifted. No. And so then there was no net gain of the ceasefire. And now you've like burned the concept of having a ceasefire. Yeah. No one's going to believe you now if you try that shit later. So I'm like, well, I mean, as Nick, I would give him that cockeyed look for two reasons. One, you know that June is going to be in that area. We've already had this discussion. But two, how is this even going to help in the long game? You know, like, okay, fine. We're like little, you know, little boys blowing up cherry bombs and exploding things right there. But I thought we were going to be big men and try to change the entire economic stance of our country. I mean, this is a very small move. How many people are you going to kill? maybe a couple hundred at best of these relief workers. Okay, but what did you not accomplish? You didn't get anything changed with these huge trade agreements that would change the entire country. I don't know. I just think it's really short-sighted. It makes me laugh at the council in terms of just how, like I said, little boys playing with cherry bombs. Like they just are not even thinking about this in a big way. They're just small minds. What about that guy that called Nick's son? That guy looked to be like five years older than Nick. That guy's gross. They're all gross. And I understood when he was, when he, when the one guy says, well, you can't kill the roaches if they're in the walls. So that's the sun guy. I understand. Right. I understand this idea that I guess if they think about, look, the people who are closest to the lines, both the relief workers on the Canadian side and any of the survivors who are like on the edge, right? Who might be trying to come across or might be doing whatever they're doing or whatever kind of little guerrilla warfare they might be causing. If we could squelch all of them, then it's just like army v army because you don't have all those little cockroaches kind of just like disruptors along the edges, right? Stopping the train, taking the supplies, that kind of stuff because we kind of bomb them all. So we get it. And that's a very good short gain. But I guess as the commander, I mean, you saw Commander Lawrence sit forward and be like, because this is stupid. Like, we're blowing our chance for something much bigger. But all right, y'all go blow up a couple buildings, you know, and really, like you said, we got to spank them. I thought you wanted to dominate the world. You're right. This is the equivalent of a spanking comparatively. Not going to work. I don't like it. I don't like it, Paul. No one did. No, nobody did. Well, but here's the thing. Endgame for the Gileadians. Lydia, back in power, got a new class of women. They looked awfully young. Man, when I saw those handmaids walking, they were like 12. Then we got Lawrence back on the council, fully decorated. All of his tassels got the whole thing. I think it would take a lot to put him back in a cell at this point. I think that there's a lot going on here where he just like reversed the wheels of justice and put himself in the judge's position, which is pretty amazing. And well, Nick has yeah. just got the question marks over his head and they're like, Do-yo-yo-yoing. what happened? Basically, yeah. Yeah. Amazing. Well, let's shift over to Chicago and check out the haps with Janine totally at, at ease uh, with the power structure not being in charge. She enjoys things there from what I can tell, right? I think it's probably really nice to have a little bit of security. And and I know it's all very false security, but at the same time, it's perceived security. You know, I mean, she can go to bed at night feeling like she's a little bit safer, I guess. I know it all sounds so weird. They're like blowing up buildings like two blocks away. And they're like, just lay back in your bed. It's perceived safety, but it's not someone coming up in your room at night and it's not somebody beating you or stoning you or something like that, right? So it's all relative. Like, is it safe the way we think of safe? No, but is it safer than what they were doing? Yeah, it kind of is. Here's the thing. I don't think anyone would fight for them. Like if Janine was snatched, I don't think anyone's sticking around to try to fight a soldier to keep Janine in the group. Correct. You know? So then it's like, well, you're safe for a second. <laughs> you're safe for now. I do think watching her prepare to shoot that gun, I have to think that that is our little Chekhov's gun training situation, right? I think she's going to need it. Uh, maybe not for a while, but yes, I think knowing how to fire a gun is going to come up like you suggested. I hope it does because I want to see her in that position of power. And I want to see that that some of these steps that we've been taking with the Steven group and everything actually accumulates to something bigger. You know, we actually get somewhere because of that. And if all we get out of that is that she got gun training, they have some personal moments here. I think that was actually like a fine stepping stone then to have had this plot. I can't 
reconcile all of the Steven group actions when they're out for trading and they run across the burned bodies of the Gilead soldiers and they say, oh, those were the Nighthawks that did that. They're hardcore, basically. And they and they kind of like, we're not like that. But then, you know, wasn't it last week that they were blowing up a train? And then there's a scene when they hide in the cafe rather than engage the soldiers. And June's like, nah. yeah. And, you know, that was probably a much better call to not get them all killed because not some of them weren't even armed. What were they going to do? Nothing. So, <laughs> I mean, they have larger projects and blowing up trains. That's not like a trivial, <laughs> you know, five minute event <laughs> that they go and handle. So it, it is, I'm a little like, what is their mission? Are they just survivors? Because that's I what I was thinking. they're just survivors. I think that's 100%. That's what they do. They're not the resistance. They're just living. They are just living and they're just, or just trying to muddle through until things kind of settle in one way or another. I have learned so much through Walking Dead that I feel like... All of this stuff about engaging what's outside versus just staying quiet and kind of sneaking out the back. It all depends on what your motivation is. If you are just trying to get there, get supplies and get out and get back to your safe place. No, you don't engage with whoever's outside, whether it's zombies, an alternate group or the opposing soldiers. It doesn't matter who it is out there. You don't engage. You don't shoot one guy because... Stephen was completely correct. Like, what are you going to do? You shoot three people, they don't come back and they send 3,000. Like, what are you thinking? That's not smart. You know, just, just leave them wandering out there. Let them go. Go out the back with your supplies. Stay quiet till they leave. That is proven to be a safe tactic. Yeah. June's attitude in this whole section, I had a real issue with. And I'm glad Janine called her out on it because I was like, girl, you are so in everyone's face I don't know if it was the way that the lines were delivered or what. I can't I can't decide. I mean, what is your opinion? The way that June was like, come on, let me in. Come on, come on, come on, come on, let me in. Like coming from just like New York mobster. Like I was like, who even is this? Like, why aren't you just talking like a regular person? And why are you coming at them with like the energy at 10 when everyone else is like lazing around at like a four? Like, what are you doing? If you just want to get information and learn how they do trades, smoothly slide into the group. What are you doing? June has something in common with a few people that I know in my life. She can't work for anybody else. As soon as she figures out where the power is, she starts trying to to work her way into it. And once she figures out that that's not for her, then she wants to bolt. This is like classic, like can't work for anybody else kind of behavior. It makes her seem very impatient, rash, and in this, seem reckless. Like in this the way setting where she doesn't know, him. she doesn't even know the rules of outside Gilead. Mm-mm. You know, this yeah. isn't anything that she's used to. She's been here for a day. Yeah, I was super turned off by this because I just don't think it's smart. It's like, you know? <laughs> it's like if I was running this resistance, this is what I would do. <laughs> Sort of, but but even more than that, because it's not like she paid attention in that in that scenario. And and for those listeners who don't know what Paul's talking about, we've been in many situations where I observe how something works first. I go through the process of it, and I'm like, you know what? If I own this restaurant, I would totally move this table over there because X Y Z. Right? I say this all the time. It's like our running joke. It's really my entire side of the family's running joke. Is that you know we don't have to pick it apart to the person, but internally we're like, "Mm, this could really be improved, (laughs) but we don't like make a scene out of it. Okay. June, on the other hand, she didn't take that first step, Paul. She didn't take the observation step. She didn't watch what the process was and how it worked and then step back and say, well, I, I want to be a part of it, or I want to do this better, or I could, I could add to this or whatever. That's what's galling me is that she just wants to jump in with two feet blindly without any thought of like, who are you even meeting? How does this work? Where are you even going? What are the rules? Like you said, there's rules of engagement when it comes to other groups and stuff. Like, I don't know. I just didn't like her hyper intensive, like, come on, come on, come on, come on, come on. Like every time she said that, I was like, literally like my shoulders would go up. Like, where is your like ability to be like a diplomat anymore? Like that was a big part of how she got through life in the Waterford house. And as she had to get along with the other handmaids and then like Lawrence's house, like she had to work with Mrs. Lawrence. She had to like maneuver. Like this person is a person who, like you said, impatient is one word, but bordering on like reckless and to what end? And in this episode, it's to what end? You never bothered to ask any questions. You never looked around a little bit. You just kind of like ran right at the target. They didn't explain anything about the Nighthawks. 
They could be cannibals. They yeah, could be all men. They could be Nazis. Good point. Super good point. What if they are cannibals? Let's just like stop for a second. She didn't ask one question about like, what do you know about them? Oh, they're all ex-military. Okay. Well, what do you know about them? Oh, they're all women. Anything would have been important. And actually as a viewer, that's more interesting to me than having my main character put her head down like a bull and barge into the China shop. Like that's far less nuanced and interesting. I appreciated that Janine again called her out and said, hey, you're really handling this wrong. Like, and and actually was the smoother over with Steven was like, you know, you want June. I wouldn't be here. We wouldn't be here. These kids wouldn't be out if it wasn't for her. Those kids are out, not because you went around and said, come on, come on, come on, come on. They're out because you were smooth. You were calculated. You made relationships and you made a move. That's why those kids are out. You didn't just go around to each house and start yelling outside the windows the way that you're acting now. It's super off-putting to me. It's a change in her character that I feel like doesn't make her smart, just makes her feel impulsive. Here's a fun fact. The Nighthawks is a fairly famous painting of three people sitting in a diner. They're wearing kind of 1950s style dress. There's a man and a woman sitting in a counter and then a kind of catty corner from them is another man sitting. You'll recognize it immediately. And the thing that's interesting about it is that it hangs in the Art Institute of Chicago. So what if the Nighthawks are just pissed off art students? That is a possibility. What if they're all museum docents who got kicked <laughs> out of the museum where we're having the trading post? Uh, <laughs> you don't know. Like, That's the thing. My guys. knowledge of the T-Rex is going completely unused. Yeah, and they're all just like all frustrated by the by the way things are being treated, that the T-Rex bones got wrecked and stuff. Like We don't know what the problem is. But June, my girl, like I wish that you would have just handled this a little bit more smooth. Now, here's the thing. I think we are being caught up with COVID times. I think we're being caught up with production timing because this is going fast and furious. When I look back that this is episode five, all the places June has been in five episodes. She's been on a farm. She's been on the run. She's been in a cell, in a van. She's been on a train. She's been on the run. She's been in a, like a survivalist camp. Five episodes, Five episodes and we have all that. So I know I'm kind of complaining about nuance in a show right now that is just like slapping the sides of my head with a symbol. Like, and next episode, and next episode is like, oh my God. Sort of the Forrest Gump approach to storytelling. Well, and sort of, and also like, <laughs> it's funny that you said it like that. Because you know what that makes you do? Suspend disbelief. It makes you say... It makes no sense how they got, how Forrest got from here to here. It makes no sense that this person is in front of Forrest Gump in this scene. But I, I just have to just suspend disbelief because of the storytelling. That's harder to do in this one because it's supposed to be more of this tale, this journey. And if it's not about the ending and it's about her actual journey, then I kind of have a beef with like, well, then you can't rush the journey in a way that makes you feel like, how did you get here? And why would you do that? Mm -hmm. Some of how this season is being presented could probably be chalked up to COVID-related complications, whether it's the number of people on set or the kind of the iffy quality of some of those, what do they call them, matte painting shots uh, in Chicago. Yeah, like specifically when she's running down the streets and stuff, it was very Wizard of Oz. Like you could see the end of the set and like where the wall was. And I was, I was kind of surprised at that. I mean, I understand, I guess that's a way to keep it like walled off, I guess, that portion of the set. Yeah. Um, and so I guess that would be more controlled in some way. But boy, it was, I mean, it was obvious and I just couldn't look away. <laughs> We've seen how they make the Mandalorian and that's just on a tiny little place, but they use very high-end technology to do it. Right. And but because it's science fiction and everything doesn't quite look real, then you're like, well... You know, whatever. But here, <laughs> when they're trying to trying to use kind of an old fashioned technique, right? And it's like a bus, <laughs> and you can see it's just a painting of a bus, right? It's like, huh? <laughs> exactly. Uh, okay, Paul, Janine. Did you think Janine was going with June on these adventures? Did you have a moment of pause or did you think, nah, she's definitely going to stay? You know, I have lobbied for the idea that Janine has had this well of strength that the show hasn't allowed her to show completely just yet. And so when I see her say things like, I can stay here and have a baby, I, I, I go back to thinking that she's got something not not screwed in right in her head. I'm not I'm not sure. So then 
the, these questions of does she stay, does she go, she says, she says, she says that she's going to stay, but then she does actually go. It makes me wonder if you're Madeline Brewer, how do you prepare for this goddamn character where you're like one week, you're barely an adult mentally, but then the next week you're having, uh, you know, consensual sex and learning how to use a gun. It, it's like this character is hard to pin down as in, in terms of like, what's your elevator pitch on Janine? That's got to be a long elevator ride. I don't know. Okay, so I'll try. I will say this. I think that she is a rusted development at the maturity level at about a 14, 15 year old. So it's like she absolutely is into boys and, you know, babies and all that kind of stuff. But at the same time, her judgment is flawed and not well thought out. And certainly not like if I do this, the effect will be that. It's incredibly sad how she clings to this idea of having, you know, the same life that she had before with like her and her baby and having a family. However, is that really any different than June with Hannah? And clinging to, you know, what could be and trying to go back to this normalcy and the life that you knew. And, you know, we kind of allow it for June. In fact, that's a completely acceptable motivation. But for Janine, we're like, well, that's crazy. And it's like, well, is it? I mean, she's just trying to recapture what she had. Is this is this just like a am not a woman sort of thing? The, the, how she keeps coming back to babies and this idea that that's and that's what equals I don't know if the right word is normalcy or value or... I, no, I just think it was her life before. Her life before was herself and her son, Caleb. So I think she's just trying to go back to that. I don't think it has anything to do with being a woman or anything like that. It was just, it was what was happening before. She was a mom of a toddler. Does that mean she's given up on these other kids that she's had? Unlike the June scenario where I think we're supposed to believe that... If June were to write the ending of this story, it would equal she's living somewhere with her kids and her husband. Well, again, though, Nicole doesn't represent the life before. It's She's something that happened during this Gilead time. So I can't really speak to what her actual relationship is with her. But certainly when it comes to Hannah, I mean, yeah, she, she's just trying to recreate what she had. But then Janine, she also had a pre-existing kid and she also dropped a calf in Gilead, at least one that we know of. I don't remember if she had another one before. No, I think that was it. What was it Charlotte, Putnam's. I want to say? Is she just mentally like, it's unrealistic that I'm going to reconnect with those kids. I'm just moving on with what I've got here. I you think so. Okay. I think so. And, and I think the idea that, you know, I mean, I think she's hopeful about Caleb because she doesn't know. And that's something where we are going to have to wait to see when the other shoe drops here. And I think it's going to be Lydia who tells her because I think there's got to be some amount of backlash from the comment that June made in a previous episode to Lydia, like Janine was the first one to turn on you. That's going to lead to some interaction between Lydia and Janine where Lydia's like, oh, and BT dubs, your kid's dead. What was the secret? Remember? About Caleb? Remember, there was some secret that that June had information on about Janine's kid, but she told her a lie so that she wouldn't go ape shit. And- that Caleb died in a car accident. So what's the truth? Caleb's dead in a car accident. Okay. She told him she told him that Caleb was alive. She said that she, he had gone out to California with his family and he's living there happily and in reality he was in a car wreck with the family and he died. So yeah, so that was so that's the thing and I think that's going to still come around because uh. I think that's going to be one of those June Janine you know kind of moments. Now, here's the thing. I just made a June Janine kind of sound. I mean, that's where we're heading with this. You know, I there's so much going on here that I do want to just, can I, before we get to that last second there, I want to talk about a couple little moments. I want to talk about June and her handmaid's cloak, watching her wash it, hold it against her chest, eyeing it up when they were trading it for the Cubs hat. There was a lot of really unusual tension when it came to that cloak. She didn't want to give it up to Janine. It was very interesting. And and I know you could say practically it's a warm piece of cloth, but I think there's something more to it. Do you, do you think there's some sort of confusion for her at this point? I am correlating that with Rita and her inability to just drop the Gilead practices like a bad penny, because mm-hmm. these are women that are much better off not in Gilead. Of course. The idea that they still cling to those things with 
having only been subject to it for only a few years does stand. I don't have a rational explanation for it because I like to think that if I was them and I had the chance to scrape that shit off the bottom of my shoe, I would do it and never look back. But there's something else at play here that's not letting them treat it like that. So I think that's something I'd like to keep an eye on because I, they did bring it up with Rita. They obviously showed it with the little boy, um, you know, with his his aunt family that he was going to have to live with back in in Canada now. But I, I didn't really expect to see that hesitation from June. I no, thought it was going to yeah. be very cut and dry. So it's subtle. Again, I kind of complained about there not being enough nuance. I thought you know, okay, they're kind of layering in that same little bit of like, she doesn't have any possessions. She doesn't really have any ownership over anything. And this is like the one thing that was like hers all these years now. So maybe there's something to that. But it was just fascinating to me about how she wasn't like, sure, heck, take it, trade it for whatever you want. You know, like I was kind of like, wow, okay, there's, there's something else there. There is. I wonder, uh, the the boots seem very practical that they wear. Which Janine kept and June had on white sneakers. That's true. So I was like, huh, those boots would have been like way better choice. But again, if Janine chose to wear the boots, same thing. she's kind of still in her same shoes, right? Yeah. I think mentally and she's literally still walking in her same shoes. So I think there's something to the costume choices about what's going on right now that I really want to kind of keep an eye on. I'm like, there's something about this that they're trying to tell us. Well, and and the larger, just why can't they shake Gilead issue that that's making outsiders like us question what's what's happening mentally and emotionally that, that that's not allowing them to make such a clean break that we think they should be able to make. Right. I mean, obviously we, you know, with June, we keep saying it's Hannah. We keep saying that that's what it is and it's so cut and dry that that's what it is. But I really think there's something more. I really do. And 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 with Janine, you could say she wants to go back for Caleb and all this stuff. But she, I don't think we've heard her say his name in a very long time. Unclear. Information about him moving to California, like you just mentioned, mm-hmm. it might be enough. You know, I can't account for the way everybody thinks about everything. and I, But I can conceive of a person that feels like they have very little agency and control about anything. Mm-hmm. So the idea that, you know, one person would feel like they need to bring a government down to save their kid, I guess I can accept that. But I can also accept that another person would feel like my kid is safe and happy. Right, in the sun, on the beach in California. And so that's good enough for me. Yeah. Well, Because I can't fix it. That's very different. Mothers, because there's, you know, certainly we have met different parents. Um, We have three special needs kids and we've met different parent approaches where some are like, I will do absolutely anything. And you kind of even stand back and say like, oh, gosh, they're going almost too far or you know, do they even see what's happening here? You know, versus the parent who, you know, walks away and gives them to grandma and can't even deal you know like there's there's like so many approaches to the whole situation that it's 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 a huge spectrum you know and i think that we see that in in all these mothers that we've gotten a chance to see you know including serena for that matter including serena including serena let's get back to june and janine and that moment of deciding whether to leave i had no idea what janine was going to do but when she said she was going to stay i was like okay you know this is fascinating I did think it was very um, touching dialogue, I guess, and and clever when June's like, the baby's going to be so lucky to have you. And Janine goes, those rebels are so lucky to have you. (laughs) I was like, Janine. She does get, she's been getting the best lines so far. I think so. Like, uh, what was it? Mr. Darcy, for fuck's sake. Yes, yes. (laughs) And she delivers them beautifully. You know, give her a lot of credit. I also thought it was very sweet of her to give June the Cubs hat. And for that to have been traded because of her handmaid's cloak, I think was really, again, like a step towards walking away from Gilead. It'd be kind of interesting if uh, the Cubs emblem became like like a more important symbol Moving forward. Oh, yeah. Like show a little C with your hand action. Something, something, <laughs> you know, just that, that that represents the resistance that that June wants to be a part of because that's what she had handy, you know. I like that. that. I like that. Okay. So June takes off on her own, like we all would, walking dead center in the middle of the street. 
you know. It's the best way to hide. Broad daylight, right. not in any way trying to take cover and or walk along the sidewalk even, nothing like that. Bright, bright yellow uh, yeah. hoodie, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, bigger mm-hmm. than a circus tent. Mm-hmm, uh. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Super smart. So um, how shocked were you when she like kind of, you know, hears a little sound and it turns out to be our good friend Janine and she decides to hide under a cop car? Well, I took Janine's decision to stay at face value. So I was... Somewhat surprised, I, I guess. I thought those boots were going to be Brad. Well, she wasn't wearing particularly feminine wear from the waist down. Right. So um, when you saw just the brown boots and just the the kind of bootleg cut jeans, it was like, oh, is this going to be Brad? Yeah, you know? Because like, right. he, he kind of has circled around a couple times He's here. been sniffing around. He kind right? of has. He kind right. of has. So when it turned out to be Jane, I actually thought it was super sweet. And a nice parallel with the, I feel safer when we're in twos like that. You know, handmaids always walk in twos. Love that with the parallel to Lydia. Right. If if you're not recalling, that's uh, the that was a lesson that needed to be taught in handmade school that Lydia showed up for earlier in the episode. I think it was like the army or something like that, the equivalent to marching, just just getting into that mindset of being involved in what you're there to do. They're there to be handmaids and walk in twos and think of themselves as on this journey together. And but anyway, back to Chicago. Cop car. You hiding under it? Not me, man. I am looking for an open door or a, um, what do they call it? Where the doors is? Just the inset area, the door. Just a doorway? If like I was more urban, gym? I would know <laughs> what that section is do called. You, you mean like just sort of like between buildings, like in a little alley thing? Maybe or? that also like little, would qualify. Just a darkened doorway. I mean, we get a sense for uh, June's uh, open field running abilities later on, so mm-hmm. that's not a, a tool in her in her toolkit, I'm the afraid. The thing about it is that I felt like, again, like June should have watched some Walking Dead because that was a terrible spot to hide. It was the, but consistent with her, uh, whatever rationale had them in the milk tanker you know it was like the same thought process went into that which is like why are you gonna get wet and smelly and cold and in this case why are you gonna make it to where anyone and anything with just two people could completely block you in and like you'd have no chance of getting out of there oh my goodness june we know from walking dead you're supposed to go into a building with like multiple openings so that you've like a shot you could go up down out the back door out a window whatever right gotta have multiple entry points i want to be blocked in and she hid where you didn't even need to bend down to see her right janine could see her just standing up straight i mean i was like oh my goodness this Uh, is too much hide much june (laughs) right for fuck's sake june (laughs) that would be so funny if she said that right a little callback to mr darcy i would kind of love that okay so we make it over to this nighthawks area i was like still not even remembering about the bombing paul i completely wasn't i guess I wasn't paying attention to the timing of, you know, how close we were to the end of the episode. And I was thinking, oh gosh, the Nighthawks are going to jump out and ambush them. Like this was some sort of like, you know, walking right into the snare. The bombing, like I forgot all about that. In fact, the construction of all that was a little, what are we looking at? The They had mentioned that there was time for aid workers. I guess maybe since we were right at the end of the ceasefire period, because that's when the bombers were supposed to appear, maybe all the aid workers did was come in, drop off the MREs and get back out. I don't know. I don't know how aid works Mm, exactly. Okay. Okay, So then, so that's why there was so much food there is because the aid workers had already dropped it there. I guess. And I guess we're like sort of mid-retreat perhaps. But then the appearance of what we're getting to, the Moira's truck and all that stuff. I can't even believe. Were they not aid workers? But maybe they were heading away from the area is what I'm saying. And they like turned back when they heard the bombs? Well, to help whomever, like they were saying, yell out. You know, because probably some of their own people probably got Maybe we'll get a better explanation with the next episode. I would think so. Here's what I'm going to tell you guys. When I saw June wake up. First of all, I was utterly confused that she seemed okay. Like when they zoomed in on her hand, I thought, oh no, her hand's going to be trapped in the rocks. And then she like lifts it up. I'm like, no, it's not. And then she like isn't covered in blood and nothing's going on. The plot armor held. (laughs) But, and she looks over and she sees Moira. All I could think was, this is a dream. And then there's Moira. And then the the episode's over. And I was like, what the frick happened? (laughs) Like, was this whole last part of dream sequence? Like, I'm so confused. I looked at you. I was like, is Moira really there? I literally wrote my notes. Was that real? (laughs) It was real. Uh, I don't, 
I think it was real. The big question mark, of course, is where was Janine? I mean, they were right like, next to each other. Does she make it out or not? Um, how come? Why, why? All right. So let's go into some questions that we have moving forward here. Okay. Right? Okay. Moira, real, not real? Real. Okay. I'm going with real too, because I think actually having thought back about it, her and um, and her partner that she was on a date with when they were sitting on the steps and they were talking and he, she's like, you can come with me and blah, blah, blah. And I realized, oh, they're talking about going to Chicago. Okay. Okay. So, okay. It makes sense to me now. I get it why she's there and why she's not working at like way in the center, way over in Toronto, you know? Yes. Totally made sense. Got it. Plausible. Is Janine alive or dead? Alive. I think alive as well. I don't think that they would do her like that, right? Too much invested. I mean, and there's a lot of narrative value in having her because she's so not June. And if this is just the June show from here on out, oh. <laughs> well, and maybe if Moira gets June out, does Janine become the motivation for June to keep trying to get stuff out of Gilead? Again, even though some part of her heart is a little letting go of Hannah. You know, when you mention that, it kind of makes me foresee a discussion between those two where Moira's going to say, get in the truck. This is the way out. Oh, God. And she's going to say, nah. Go without me. Go. Go. And, she's and, just going to close the doors. And Moira's going to say, nah, we're taking care of your baby. We, oh, yeah. So many of us have our lives revolved around the shit that you dropped north of the border. Um, Whoa. You're coming with me. Whoa. I mean, wouldn't that make sense? Because she wasn't exactly like sunshine and rainbows the last time she was talking about June. You're a thousand percent right. A thousand percent right. Okay. So moving forward with say Nick and Lawrence, what do we think? Predictions or questions? Ooh. Well, there's there's been an imbalance in the force uh, and now it's going to have to set itself right. And how is that going to look? Does that mean that Nick learns his place is actually well below Lawrence's new ability to to hold sway over the council based on his blackmail ability? Mm -hmm. I think so. Okay. That makes me actually put Nick alongside of Lydia in terms of like feeling like Gilead done me wrong and having some seeds planted for like a little rebellion. Well, that might move that... that um that June Gilead loyalty scale back toward the side that's actually going to do June any good. Right. I think so. Not that I'm, I'm not suggesting listeners that Nick is in any way going to save June or the day. I, <laughs> I just think he can be of some help at certain points and that's it. But he needs more motivation than he's got right now. Cause like I mentioned before, he's very self interest motivated most of the time right now. Yeah, I think there's a lot of confusion. I mean, that conversation with Lawrence last episode where he was like still having all these feelings and Lawrence is like, uh, how will you know she's there? Will your heart glow? <laughs> if you listen close, you can hear Nick did laugh. It was funny. And it was also like, you know, just good stuff. Good, good stuff. So these are the things I'm looking for. And I'm kind of wondering now that we've named the Nighthawks, if the Nighthawks are going to help us, if they're going to become some sort of force that is actually going to become someone we need to know, like Mayday. Kind of curious if they're going to come back in. I kind of think we're done with Steven and the BJs. I hope we are because I'm done with them. Yeah, I... I don't need that crew anymore. No. <laughs> okay, well, I'm really excited to look forward to next week. For all I know, the way that this goes at warp speed, June will be piloting the space shuttle headed to the mission for <laughs> Mars because that's just how fast this show is going and how quick it can turn on a dime. So this is Caroline. And this is Paul. Thanks for listening. Thank you for listening. This has been an original Pod Clubhouse production. Pod Clubhouse is a podcast network dedicated to encouraging collaboration among podcasters and friends to bring a fresh voice and diverse perspective on a wide array of content. Please visit and leave a comment for us at podclubhouse.com. Rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast feeds on Apple Podcasts. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. You can find us at Pod Clubhouse. Our DMs are always open, and we'd love to hear from you. Pod Clubhouse.